listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Ray Hollenbach. Um, I am so happy to be here with you again. Uh, my wife uh, has been here a couple of times, but uh, uh, always at the Visualite. So this is her first time here among you guys at the new place. And uh, I bring greetings to you from the vineyard in Campbellsville, Kentucky, or as we like to call it, QCC West. Um, we, we look over our shoulders and we marvel at what God is doing among you all, and uh, we rejoice in it. And we drink deeply from the multiple, multiple fountains that are here. Uh, uh, Robin and Donna uh, have sold their lives for the gospel uh, and then sold their lives again and again, as as is I'm sure if I heard your stories, many of you have. Um, but what a blessing uh, to have Robin and Donna uh, as your senior leaders. And then, of course, you know, all these other people. And, and I'm, I'm so amazed each time that uh, that I'm with you of the, the kind of people. And then Stephen gets up and gives testimonies and you know, I was going to say, well, you know, I found my lucky clover, um, but there's people that are getting raised from the dead. So how cool is that? That's just wonderful. Yeah. So I was on the phone with Robin earlier in the week, and I said, what, how can I serve? What would you like me to talk about? He said, talk about whatever you want. Uh, and it turns out that, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, from... Um, 1975 onward, my twin obsessions have been either the gospel of the kingdom of God or discipleship, and really those two are inextricably linked. And uh, I have really good news for you today. I have what is essentially about a five-minute message, and it's also a 25-minute introduction that comes (laughs) at the beginning of the five-minute message. Which is to say that uh, I think I know where I'm going, and uh, I don't know, I've never had a chair up here. I'm kind of enjoying this. So, you know, cheers, right? Uh, The chair is very nice. Uh, I may start doing this when I lecture. I I teach uh, 18 and 20-year-olds at a liberal arts college in Kentucky, and I usually get up and dance around like a circus bear and try to do things to keep them entertained. But how about if I just do hand puppets for you guys? Would that be all right? Okay, well, I'm kind of getting the feel now for you all, for the sound system. Uh, I got my notes right there. And uh, Chris was kind enough to uh, convert some of my notes to uh, slides. And yes, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I know that my pastor, Adam Russell, was here four or five weeks ago. And you remember that uh, he started in on this avenue, the gospel of the kingdom of God. The quick review from Adam is that what has happened, especially in the United States among evangelicals slash charismatics, is we've taken this wonderful long phrase, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And because we're busy and we're always doing business and we're in a hurry, it got shortened to the gospel. And then unintentionally, I think, it got shortened to 
uh, I've got a sin problem. Jesus has a sin solution. It's a really good deal. I'll take that deal. Amen. I'm going to heaven. Which, by the way, is 100% true. I'm all in for that. But as, uh, as Adam has said, and I've stolen the line from him, turns out that the good news is way better than we know. And if any of us have walked with Jesus for four months or four years or beyond that, we actually do discover that the good news is better than what we first thought, even though that was a great deal, right? And so it is a 25-minute introduction because what I want to share with you, uh, this isn't ambitious at all, is from nearly the beginning of the scripture to just about the very end of the scripture, the, the vista, the horizon, the sunrise and then the turning of the earth and then the sunset of the fact that the, the kingdom of God has been what God has been up to from nearly the very beginning of creation. And, uh, so that's what I, that's what I want to do. Um, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time studying the, the gospel of the kingdom. And can I tell you that since 1975, so whatever that is, uh, 40 some years, that uh, I've mostly gotten it wrong. And that's really important because what that tells me is that when I or when we study what it is that the Holy Spirit is highlighting, the first step that we always have is to bring our own understanding or our own categories and our own definitions to the topic. And so here the Holy Spirit's whispering, gospel of the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom. And so we start to, to, to rise to that and our heart beats and goes, this must be important. This must be important. And then we bring to it all of our past, all of our understanding, all of our own culture, uh, we're talking about baby boomer, white guy. Uh, and so I would bring all of those preconceptions to the gospel of the kingdom. And in 1975, I didn't know about moleskin notebooks, but I, but I bought like a little accountant's record book. And I went through the New Testament looking for every single mention of the gospel of the kingdom of God or just the kingdom of God. And I, and I wrote down every verse and I wrote down what it meant to me. And now that I look back and praise Jesus, I lost that notebook uh, because nearly everything that I wrote in the notebook at the beginning was like just wrong. Have you ever noticed, for example, that for, when Jesus talks about leadership and if you go, there are no Christian bookstores anymore, but when you used to go to Christian bookstores, uh, you would look in the, the leadership books and nobody would ever bring up that the number one thing Jesus says about leadership is our tendency to get it wrong. It was always do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. And really what Jesus said is, you know, well, the, you know, the kings of this world, they lord it over their subjects, but with you, it should not be so. Whoever would be the greatest would, would be the least. And I could get that right on a test and get it wrong every single day that I was a husband, that I was a father, that I was a pastor, I could get it wrong every single day. So isn't that encouraging that most of what my life experience is with the gospel of the kingdom is stuff that I've grown through the effort of it and at the same time realized how otherworldly God's kingdom is. Well, duh, God lives in heaven, we live on earth, right? How otherworldly God's 
kingdom is. And then the miracle of it is that the way things are done in heaven, the way things are done in God's kingdom, it has been sneakily infiltrating and surreptitiously finding its way to earth in the most unlikely places, not where the big shots are, not where the rich people are, not where the famous people are, but silently but surely the Holy Spirit is doing his work in the lives of the poor, the down and out, silently, sneakily, surreptitiously the Holy Spirit has been doing his work among those that are hurting, those that feel loss. The, the Holy Spirit has been doing his work among people who feel anxiety and fear as a way of life, but the Holy Spirit is, is coming alongside of them. And so this is what I want to share. And where I want to get is to invite you to be able to reconsider what it is that we think we know about God's categories, and in particular, the category that is today, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So let's look at discovering the kingdom of God. Well, look right there. There it is. Turns out that as early as the book of Exodus, now I'm, I'm pretty sure that the book of Exodus is near the beginning of the Bible. It comes like way, way, way over here. And just about the time that Yahweh is revealing himself to say, I've seen the suffering of my people, I've heard the cries of my people, and I am becoming present to do something about it. Now, right there, if those are the only notes you take, that can change your life. Who is God? He sees our suffering, he hears our cries, and he becomes present to do something about it. And so what does he do? He takes the most unlikely 80-year-old cast-off who hasn't been a part of the cool kids for 40 years, and he says, I want you to go back to the cool kids and say, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And, you know, hilarity and catastrophe ensues, and there's plagues, and there's all kinds of things. And it ends with what? The children of Israel going right through the Red Sea, and then when the army of Egypt tries to follow them, the sea closes on them, and in perhaps one of the first recorded worship songs in all of Scripture, it's we're singing and celebrating at the death of thousands of Egyptian soldiers. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Yeah, and, and if you have any history in charismania, you might know a song like that. I used to do what was called the charismatic two-step to that very song, right? But what is deceptive about that is here we are, we're celebrating God's strong arm, God's power. And the very last verse, and it's in Exodus 15, it says, Yahweh reigns forever. And this is how surreptitious, this is how sneaky. Can you, can you tell I got the thesaurus out before I did this message? This is how uh, subterranean the word of God is. That <laughs> I got lots more. Uh, the Lord reigns forever. Well, that word, it's not R-A-I-N-S, it's R-E-I-G-N-S. It is the reign of God. And do you know who reigns? Kings and queens, royalty, royalty reigns. And in the middle of a great song and lots of dancing about their deliverance is this last line that basically says, you know, in your experience from this point on, I reign forever, says Yahweh. This is, this is actually our introduction to the message of the kingdom. There are hints 
or as Paul Simon says, hints and allegations about it in the book of Genesis. But here it is finally said explicitly, God reigns forever. And it turns out that we flip all the way to the back of the book and you find out that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign, what? Yeah, that's right. That's so good. So uh, it's replete throughout the scriptures. In the New Testament, there are more than 100 mentions of the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Do you realize that you won't find barely a dozen mentions about getting saved? There is salvific language, but put this in the scale. More than a hundred mentions about God, the creator of the universe, reigns and rules in our lives with get saved. And I'm in favor of getting saved. If you've never made a commitment and asked Jesus to rescue your backside out of the flames... This is a great day to do it. But at the same time, put them in the scale and and see the difference of the weight. Okay, well, what else did I say about this? Oh, yeah. Uh, Also, Exodus, uh, Yahweh says, you all, meaning today you are the slaves escaping from Egypt. Uh, I will bring you to myself on eagle's wings, and I will make you a kingdom of priests. Imagine that. An entire kingdom where there's a king and all of the subjects, and it's a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Do you, do you know what a priest does? Anybody here? I, I spent the first eight years of my life uh, in the Catholic faith, which means I was an eight-year-old. So deep grasp we're talking here. Uh, anybody here raised Catholic? I mean, some of us have an idea of what priests do, far more than the rest of us. And what a priest does is a priest represents God to humanity and represents humanity to man. And we actually have a great high priest of our confession. That would be that guy, Jesus, right? But this is what a priest does. And Yahweh is saying, y'all, because he's a southerner, are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We are called, our task is to represent God to humanity and, to in, and, and likewise to turn around and represent humanity before God like Abraham did in bargaining for the lives of people in Sodom and Gomorrah and like Moses did in bargaining for the lives of wayward people. So this gets introduced to us in Exodus 19 and then you find that the apostle Peter is still picking up that language in the New Testament. Turns out, who knew? The Christians of the first century, they used to read the Old Testament a lot. And they drew their understanding, their imagery, and their language, right? So don't worry, I'm not going to go through every scripture because I don't have that much time in my 25-minute introduction. But, if, but every kingdom has a culture. Uh, Stephen, when you went to Iraq, I'm going to steal an old joke from Steve Martin. Uh, turns out they probably have a different word for everything over there. Yeah, you can't just say, I want water. You got to say it their way, right? Well, they, well the, the kingdom has a culture. And if you'd like to discover the kingdom culture, well, I would recommend Isaiah 61. It is the first scripture from which Jesus preached. Luke chapter four, he finds the scroll of Isaiah. He opens the scroll of Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. But actually, it's the entire chapter will describe the culture of a whole different way of doing life, right? So from 
Exodus, which is right near the beginning, all the way to Peter, all the way through Luke. Turns out Jesus tells his disciples, 12 of them in Luke chapter 9, that they should go and preach the kingdom. And it's so successful that just one chapter later, Jesus rounds up another group of people, another 60 or so, and he says, you should go preach the gospel of the kingdom. And then finally, this one is worth taking a moment on. The resurrected Lord Jesus, which would be freaky. Do you understand? I mean, I'm, I'm all in for the resurrection, the literal physical resurrection. But if Jesus manifested right here, it would freak me out. The resurrected Lord Jesus, it says at the beginning of the book of Acts, hung out with the disciples for 40 days, comma, teaching them about the kingdom of God. So what was so important that Jesus says, my work's done here. Wait, I have a couple more things right before I go. And he teaches about the kingdom for 40 days. Now there's a podcast I would subscribe to. Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. And then it turns out that the very last verse in the book of Acts, you have the apostle Paul under house arrest receiving anybody that would come to him, comma, teaching about the kingdom of God. From Exodus to Revelation. This, this uh, IMAX that is Isaiah and Isaiah 61 describing a culture and the entire mission of the first century church from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28, it's the kingdom of God. Did, did you know that there was that much scope? And yeah, Robin said, I, I teach at a university. So your homework is like, you know, just scribble all them down. Get a notebook. And then realize that as you write things in the notebook, you'll come back 10 years later and you'll go, I didn't even begin to have a grasp, but it's a glorious path to be on, right? So it turns out we're swimming against the cultural currents of our day. Let's do another slide if we can. And um, the kingdom of God is the message of Jesus through and through. I recommend reading Luke's gospel because Luke uses the phrase kingdom of God. Turns out Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven only because Matthew was trying not to uh, offend the ears of his Jewish hearers. But Matthew wasn't talking about going to heaven when you die. Luke is certainly not talking about going to heaven when you die. It's, it's one thing about me going to heaven. It's another thing entirely about trying to get heaven into me now. Well, there's, there's a tweet or there is... There's the gospel of the kingdom in the nutshell. Instead of us being so concerned with going to heaven, God is concerned with getting heaven into us. To which I say, come Lord Jesus, more Lord. Um, you know, correct what's wrong in me, encourage me. And, you know, he's been faithful to do that uh, for quite a few years uh, with me. So Luke is replete with these examples. And you can see it's his message. It's the purpose behind his miracles. Uh, it's, it's everything that Jesus does is related to the kingdom. All those beautiful parables that we read, uh, Mark chapter four, Luke chapter 13, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 13 and wherever it is in Luke, they're actually sprinkled throughout. He says, huh, what should I compare the kingdom to? Now, when the son of God has to think, hmm, this is a big topic. What should I compare it to? You know it's a big topic. And so Jesus is looking for metaphors. Jesus is looking for stories. Jesus is looking for just one way after another after another to bring us the message of the kingdom of God. And we swim, especially here in the Southeast, 
among evangelicals, charismatics. We swim against the current of the gospel of go to heaven when you die, which I'm in favor of, but it's taking the glory of God and it's shortening it. It's shortening it. If you have followed Jesus for any length of time, five years or 10 years, and you've wondered like, Lord, what else is there for me? I've I've gotten married, I either have or I am raising my kids. If you think that your only task is to populate heaven later with more people, well, the good news is better than you thought. Heaven wants to populate itself in you right now. And if we were a small group, well, we could even do this. We've got a minute or two. Um, let Let me just ask you, What do you think heaven is like? Now, this will be for extroverts only, obviously. But what goes on in heaven? Worship Worship goes on in heaven, right? So wouldn't it be nice if, by the way, how often does it go on in heaven? Wouldn't it be great if worship were all the time in me, right? And uh, I'm just so grateful to the worship team uh, today. And boy, the lyrics of that Sandra McCracken song just slayed me, right? But wouldn't it be great if, you know, later today at 2.30 or Wednesday at 9 a.m. that worship were going on in me? All right, so that's the way things are done in heaven, being worked in me. What else goes on in heaven? More worship. <laughs> More worship. It's true. I, I've heard John Mark talk about the fact, though, that when he was a kid, that his mom told him, well, when you get to heaven, you know, we're going to sing worship songs all the time. And, and John Mark was like, hmm, that's kind of a mixed bag, you know? I'm not sure I like it. And, you know, if my kids were looking at me doing a charismatic two-step, they'd say, no, thank you, I ain't going to do that. Well, it turns, out, it turns out that when you read Revelation, the final two chapters, you get this look at what the world is like as what? Oh, by the way, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to the earth like a bride prepared for... The motion of God is not to simply just suck us up into the sky. The motion of God is that the, the, the beautiful city, streets paved with gold, whose gates are never closed, that that city is making its motion toward us. And I heard a loud voice saying, now the dwelling of God is among men and women. So, yes, worship. But wouldn't it be great if God lived at my house right now? I mean, but, I mean, and I know theologically, he does live in my house. But wouldn't it be great if experientially, you got theologically, you got experientially. Wouldn't it be great if experientially God lived in my house right now? Now the dwelling of God is among men and women. And what happens? There's no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. Yes, worship is going on, but do you notice the distinct absence of the deep kinds of sorrow that happen, right? And then the the voice of the Spirit says, because the former things have passed away. And so part of my prayer has been, Jesus, would you help me identify right now, what are the former things? And how much do I dwell, think upon, live in, recount, 
am trapped by the former things? And how much more do I want to experience the presence of God? He sees our suffering, he hears our cries, and he becomes present to do something about it. In Exodus, the motion is from heaven to earth. In, in, in Revelation, the motion is from heaven to earth. Well, heck, in the Gospels, there's this, this, this second person of the Trinity, apparently, and his motion is towards the earth. You, you see, God is so much for us that he doesn't sit back waiting for me to get it right. He is a constant and relentless pursuit constant and relentless pursuit that he could come and dwell among us. I'm in favor of that. And I hope you are too, right? We do fight a cultural um, um, set of expectations here in the U.S. and the Southeast. But it turns out Jesus has believers in Eastern Asia and in South America, and in Saharan Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, in Central Asia. He even has believers in Europe, right? It's crazy, right? And it turns out that their cultural expectations might be a little bit different. Oh, how wonderful it would be to listen to the voices of other Christians. To listen to the voices of other Christians. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for the internet superstars and the YouTube channels, but the truth is, is that I want to hear from my Japanese brothers and sisters. I want to hear from my Iraqi brothers and sisters. I want to hear from my Zimbabwean brothers and sisters. And so I want to hear from the Spirit of God. Let me encourage us that we could open our eyes and ears. Turns out there is this thing called the interweb, and we can listen to the voices that have been marginalized in our society. As Adam Russell likes to say, it's always up and to the right. Up and to the right. That's all America does is up and to the right. Well, there are people who understand that, that God's way is not just along two axes. Heck, it's not even along... Four, it's not even quadratic. No, it's spherical, 360. God moves every which way, right? So all of these things, he said, are simply the introductions to the kingdom of God. But now, what is the kingdom? Finally, you would think that, you know, a guy that teaches at a school could define his terms. The scripture wonderfully provides us two definitions. One definition of the kingdom, y'all have been praying and maybe not even known it because when we pray it out loud, we take a breath at precisely the wrong time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Except grammatically, it's one sentence. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The movement of God is from heaven to earth. The movement of God is to move from the most exclusive gated community in in all of the cosmos and to come down and to slum with us. Isn't that wonderful? And whether you know it or not, that means that for some time you have been praying that God's kingdom would come here and now. And the definition of God's kingdom is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Lately, I've discovered how radically life-changing just that one phrase is. In the mornings, I get the, we have a puppy, not even a year old at our house. Somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m., I get the pleasure of taking the dog out. And so I pray the Lord's Prayer. Dog's on the leash. Dog doesn't care, right? And so uh, we have this lovely home. We built it about 20 years ago. And I'm looking back at the house, and nearly every morning, our Father who art in heaven, and I'm thinking our Father, I'm thinking Kim's dad, my dad, Katie's dad. That we have two that are grown that have moved away, so I didn't never pray for them anymore anyway. But we got, we got one that's still at home. I pray for her. And so I say, our father, and I'm th- immediately thinking of Kim and Katie and Ray. Right? And then I say, let your kingdom come. And I turn around and I look at our house. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it becomes a daily prayer, thanks to a puppy who's got to go out early. It's, it's sacramental. Taking the dog for a walk turns out to be sacramental. And I say, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done inside of that house this day, right? So what is one definition of the kingdom? It is wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It turns out that God's will is done in some of the least likely places. And God's will is not done in some of the places where you would expect God's will to be done the most. But I'll leave that for Mary's wonderful prayer, the Magnificat, where he says, where she says, the rich have been put, sent away empty and the poor he's filled with good things. You guys can figure that one out. So one definition of the kingdom is wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And then another definition of the kingdom, and I love this one so much because it is so quickly passed over. The Apostle Paul Romans 14, it's a long, it's a religious argument. Should you eat meat offered to idols or not? Should you use grape juice or wine at communion? Should you uh, watch R-rated movies or not? It's like the things that religious people love to argue about. And right in the middle of Paul helping the Romans through a religious argument, he says, actually, the kingdom of God is, isn't about rules or regulations. He says the the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but just read for that, trust me. The kingdom of God isn't about this silly argument you guys are having. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I learned a long time ago that one of the things that I should do whenever I encounter the word righteousness, do your eyes glaze over when you try to read biblical commentaries about the word righteousness? Can I, can I give you this gift today? Whenever I read the word righteousness, I simply substitute right relationship. You guys, that has helped me so much in reading the New Testament. Whenever I see righteousness, I just simply say right relationship. And for a bear of very little brain, it helps me move on, right? So here it is. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is right relationships peace and joy, all wrapped up in a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit. Well, good. I'll take that as an amen, whoever said love. Yeah. That's what the kingdom of God is. Now, who doesn't want to sign up for right relationships, peace and joy, wrapped up in a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit? That's idyllic. I mean, that's the center of the target. My, my dear bride will tell you, we're not quite there yet, but our house 
is characterized by peace. People come and visit. Teenagers would come over when our two older kids lived at home. One girl sits down on our couch and goes, can I just sit here a while? It feels so peaceful. And all I did was just kind of go, cha-ching. Right? Cha-ching. This is the definition of the kingdom of God, where his will is done on earth the same way it's done in heaven, and where our lives can be characterized by right relationships, peace, and joy. Now, I'm all about good theology, but how much of that is emotional and relational, and how much of that is doctrinal? I mean, at the, at the, very, at the very least, two-thirds of the kingdom is peace and joy, and those are kind of touchy-feely subjective things. I'm in favor of touchy-feely subjective things because the Spirit comes. He wraps himself around us. Isn't that wonderful? All right, here ends the 25-minute introduction. All I've wanted to do today is to introduce you to the kingdom and then to leave you with a five-minute sermon, which is to say I'm going to go to preaching, meddling. Uh, I'm going to go, as they say, from the indicative to the imperative. And the imperative means when you shake your finger at people and say, you'd better do this. One last verse, it's in Mark's gospel, chapter one. Let me read it. Adam read it when he was here a month or so ago. This is Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. And by the way, Jesus just starting his ministry. It is chapter one. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So here is from the indicative to the whatever imperative. Here's the imperative. The only way that I will or you will, we will experience God's kingdom is to repent and believe the good news. This is the roadway into the kingdom. Repent and believe. And if you're used to the guy, and on purpose I brought my leather Bible today so I could shake it at you at least once. If you're used to associating the word repent with the Bible shaking, you know, turn or burn type preaching, can I just tell you that the word repent in the New Testament is the word that means rethink. It's metanoia, like, you know, meta like metamorphosis which means to change your body, right? Um, metamorphosis is to change the body. Metanoia, which is the New Testament word for repent, is to change your mind. So if I had to, uh, if, I am no Eugene Peterson, but if I were Eugene Peterson and I had to do this one passage, it would be this. Rethink your lives and believe the impossibly good news that heaven is breaking into earth. Rethink your lives and dare to believe the impossibly good news that heaven is breaking into earth. Now, what will that look like? You could be uh, 15 and a high school student. You could be uh, a young African-American woman who is 28 years old and single mom. 
Um, you could be an old white guy. You could be a Latino who's uh, the, that's trying to overcome, you know, all of the difficulties of the, um, uh, you know, of, of the way our culture treats immigrants. So it doesn't matter, black, white, Latino, Asian. It doesn't matter, old or young. It doesn't matter. All of us are called to rethink our life and the specifics of who we are. I didn't fill out an application to be a white guy born in 1955. That was God's choice. And it is God's choice for you, black, white, Latino, Asian. It's God's choice that he made you who you are, male or female. And that you, and it's God's choice, even the parents he gave you, good or bad, right? But what we should do is rather than think of life happening to us, we should rethink our lives in light of the impossibly good news. Would we dare to believe that heaven is breaking into our here and our now? So that's the five-minute sermon is repent and believe the good news. How often should we repent? Well, I've been studying the kingdom of God since I was a sophomore in college, 1975, and I constantly, I mean, I've, I've, I've eaten, even written a book or two, and then I look at it six years later, and I go, this sucks real bad. I had no idea, I had no idea what I was talking about, right? Oh, it's a nice record of where I was at the time. By the way, people have asked me, when are you going to come out with another book? And I'm working really hard on it. I just need to kill off a couple of major characters. And that will spice up my autobiography quite well. <laughs> I promised my daughter I'd throw that joke in. So there it is. Can we ask, and Robin, I'm about to toss this service back to you. But can we ask the Holy Spirit to come near and to give us the grace in this moment, but also in other moments, continuing, ongoing, the grace to rethink our lives. So let's do that, shall we? Holy Ghost, Would you haunt our dreams? Would you dare to give us waking dreams? Would you dare to cause us to steadfastly look into the hills, to look upward because our salvation draws near? Would you give us the courage, Holy Spirit, to throw our anchor into the future and to pull ourselves towards your wonderful kingdom. Holy Spirit, would you help me to repent both now and forevermore? Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. 